Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. All right, here we go. Off and running for our second hour of the broadcast. Lines are open at 801-331-8113. I have a whole bunch of last-minute stories that came flying at me that I'm like, really? I, Matt, I want to I wanna bring this up, but, but uh, should I? Or should I stick to the plan? Stick to the plan or go off on a tangent? Yeah, you know me. I'm going to do both, right? Okay. So a couple things I want to cover in this hour, and one thing I'm going to bring up here. I don't know if you are aware or if you're a fan of Jordan B. Peterson. I only, uh, I guess I learned about him within the last couple of years. I I have a great deal of respect for the guy because he has, um, I think he, I in my opinion, I'll qualify it with that. In my opinion, the guy has a brilliant mind and is uh, devastatingly effective at getting his viewpoint across, even when he is being ganged up by, ganged up on by hostile social justice warriors or, uh, you know, interviewers who are laying in wait with bated breath and asking him questions, putting words into his mouth. He never loses his cool. He doesn't stoop and, you know, conduct some kind of a hit and run, you know, ad hominem attack. He just answers and answers clearly. And, and I've, I've seen him reduce more than one interviewer. And sometimes the uh, social justice types who are going after him to just sputtering, you know, individuals who they don't know how to, to question what, what he's saying. And by the way, it's not rhetorical trickery. He's just got that gift of clarity. And I know for a number of young people in particular, he has become a guru of sorts in how to get your stuff together and lead a productive life. And the fact that he starts with very simple stuff like, well, make your bed. <laughs> in other words, before you go out there to fix the world and tell everybody else, you know, this is what you need to be doing. How about get your own stuff together, get your own life in order? And I think that's a that's a true pattern. I mean, you go back all the way, you know, Confucius talked about how if if you wanted order, the men who wanted order in their in their communities or in their land, they started with themselves. They rectified their inarticulate thoughts in their hearts. Once they had their hearts in order, then they set about putting order in their families. Once their families were in order, their village found order, and then when the village was in order, then it would spread generally to the countryside. But it's really solid advice, and, and frankly, some of, the, some of the brightest minds that I've been able to encounter in, in my short life have, have encouraged, if you really want to make that difference, you've got to be willing to start with yourself. And that's, uh, that's what has made to Jordan Peterson, to me, a very sympathetic figure. Now, unfortunately... Some people are learning with uh, news of, of uh, I guess, a devastating health condition he has dealt with for the last year. Jordan Peterson has been hospitalized, actually faces life-threatening withdrawal symptoms from uh, benzodiazepine addiction. And I look, I'm a pharmacist's son. My son himself is studying to be a pharmacist. I don't have a lot of pharmaceutical knowledge, but my understanding is uh, being on... Um, mood elevators or uh, 
I guess that's the only way. There, there are a lot of people who take, you know, Xanax or take, you know, Zoloft or things like that to, to equalize uh, their anxiety or to, to help them deal with anxiety. Apparently, this is something that Jordan Peterson has been dealing with for some time. The downside is when you have been on them long enough, it's, it's kind of like uh, coming off, you know, really hardcore alcohol in the sense that the, the DTs, the delirium, delirium tremors, can actually kill you if you try to come off it too quickly. I mean, we can we can understand, right? There are side effects to pharmaceuticals. This apparently is something that Jordan Peterson has been battling with. And it's been interesting to see a lot of uh, his his fans and supporters. It's not like they're condemning the guy, but they're they're shocked. How could this be? I mean, come on. This is the guy who was helping me get my life together. How could my guru turn out to have feet of clay? And as I've seen these discussions come up and, and, and be discussed in various places on social media, I was reminded of a commentary I saw from Paul Rosenberg. This was actually written, I think, about five years ago. And it was called, We Need to Get Past Our Gurus. And so I'm going to offer this to you in the sense that uh, maybe it's something you've thought about, but I thought this was just a very helpful and productive way of looking at famous leaders or gurus. Since it's an election year, I suppose there are going to be a lot of people uh, infatuated with, you know, famous people, candidates and the like. Paul says, I would like to, uh, he says, two of his friends had recently written articles on the subject of famous leaders or gurus. And he says, I want to add my hearty agreement to their messages. In particular, I want to stress that clinging to gurus makes things worse, not better. In other words, following a guru is a downward path, not an upward path. Now, he says there's a serious difference between appreciating someone's work and hanging on their every word and joining yourself to their cause. The first is healthy. The second is not. And Paul Rosenberg says there are some of us who specialize in patching ideas together in new and useful ways. And he says, let me tell you, it's not easy work. And I think it's important that the people who do such work should be paid for it. That's why he says he charges for his monthly newsletter. It's a lot of work, and he has bills to pay like everyone else. He says it's also why he's paid other newsletter writers for their work over many years. But he says, even in my favorite case, where you all buy my monthly newsletter, I should not be your guru. I'm just a guy doing an unusual job. And if I do my job well, if I provide you with useful ideas which will improve your mind and your life, well, that's worthy of respect. But it's not something that anyone should blindly follow. He says the things that I say or that some, that anyone says should never be considered right just because we say them, but rather because they make sense, are supported by evidence, and so on. He says my job is to provide you with good ideas. Your job is to recognize them and internalize them, to build them into yourself. Both sides of that equation are necessary. And then he says the more guru-ish that someone is, the more likely they are to go off the edge. For example, he says, consider what the two articles I've mentioned above have to say. David Galland writes this, quote, You see, the truth about gurus is that they're mere mortals, which is to say that they have good points to their personalities and they have flaws. Unfortunately, the grander their guru status, the, more in, the most enhanced are their flaws. Julia Toriansky, whose experience was in some ways worse, writes this, Quote, the preachers, the activists, the writers, the videographers, the organizers, the YouTubers, I've met you all, and many of you have shaken my assumption in the good of the human being. You do not believe in freedom. You believe in exploiting fringe thought for clicks 
and semi-internet fame. End quote. And so Paul Rosenberg says, and as such things tend to, as, as such things tend to do, guru worship frequently ends with perverted gurus. Going back to his friend David Galland, David reports one of the stellar gurus of the day was in the habit of sitting in his hotel room with a bottle of whiskey, drinking himself senseless, and then calling for maid service. Well, when the maid would open the door, she would find him parked naked in a chair, facing the door, bottle in one hand and his other hand in his lap. Since he was a noted VIP, the hotel would have the courtesy of calling me rather than the police, and I had the pleasure of admonishing him to cease. And Julia adds her input. Do you not, or she says, do not promote a female counterpart's work in order to later guilt her into dating and or sleeping with you. Don't use your fame to go on sexual rampages after your divorce while calling the women you sleep with sluts to your male colleagues. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, uh, people wonder, well, why do the gurus keep coming? We can expose one guru after another, but as long as people keep looking for them, a new guru will always follow the fallen guru. And he says, the truth is this. It's the fawning group members who make the guru. Without a willing crowd, the guru, no matter how much he or she craves fame, would be left standing alone. Far too many people look for the easy way through life, and taking what the guru says as gospel saves them from the work of thinking and the responsibility of forming conclusions. Added to this is the unusual or is the usual group problem, and that is being a member of a group gives you instant acceptance and instant self-esteem. It's the same trick that keeps people emotionally chained to governments. By joining yourself to the larger and nobler entity, you save yourself the hard work of actually improving yourself. It's easy to forget about your problems when you're wrapped up in a group. Serious thinking is hard work, and improving yourself is hard work. It's easier to pick up the gospel from the guru and join his parade, but that's also fake, and it sidetracks you from being yourself for real, or bettering yourself for real. The point here is that the guru model is degenerate. It bears bad fruit. We may have different jobs the, that we do, but we don't place anybody on a pedestal. Listen to the specialist. If you think they're doing their job well, well, then respect them for it. But Paul Rosenberg says your role is not to idolize them and definitely not to petition for membership in their crowd. Your role is to internalize the good ideas they bring to you and then use them in your world. Unless your interaction with a teacher ends with you improving and acting on your own, he says there's little point to the exercise. Does that not seem like pretty solid advice? And I mean that uh, across the board. Think about it when it comes to politicians. Think about it when it comes to rock stars. Those of you who are tempted to put me on a pedestal, don't. (laughs) I'd only disappoint you. Stick around. We've got more coming up just the other side of these messages. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Go ahead, join the conversation. So I, maybe that wasn't surprising to hear uh, Paul Rosenberg's take on gurus. I think he's absolutely right, and and I, I think it becomes a crutch. And I only say this because I've been guilty of it myself. You know, there was a time when, um, you know, I, I think like a lot of people, you know, Rush Limbaugh, when he was really exploding on the national scene, he was a guru. And within talk radio, I mean, I was a fairly new talk host, but 
every host I encountered, oh, I'm going to be the next Rush Limbaugh. People would ask, are you going to be the next Rush Limbaugh? And, you know, he was he was the guru. This is the guy we want to follow. And it didn't take long to find out, you know what, he was he was human. He had his issues. I remember when he lost his hearing, he, you know, confessed, hey, I've been addicted to painkillers for many years. And, you know, it, the the point is this. I'm not trying to tear down Rush. I'm just I'm just, again, reinforcing what Paul Rosenberg had pointed out. And that is, you know, the the bigger, the the more um, popular your guru, likely the bigger demons they are fighting at any given time. Almost makes you want to go, ooh, be careful of what you wish for. Now, there was another Paul Rosenberg commentary that I came across as as I was looking for his we need to get beyond our gurus commentary. And I thought I would just dust this one off and just throw it at you just because I think this one might be as timely as it was when he penned it a little over four years ago. It's called The Specter of Suffering. And listen to this first line. Jews know how to suffer. Okay, the second line. Christians don't, although they once did. Oh, and here's the third one. Most libertarians don't know how to suffer either. <laughs> Wait a minute. Is somebody saying that we should know how to suffer? He says, while there's no virtue in suffering itself, certain kinds of suffering are absolutely unavoidable if you want to change the world. And that is to really change the world, not just jabber about it. But this is the point that he wants to drive home. And, and this is, I, I don't know where your line in the sand is. I don't know what it would take to motivate you to say, hey, you know, this is where I stand. But if you run away from suffering, anyone with a pin and a threat owns you. And don't don't take that as, you know, some kind of a dark, you know, nihilistic way of looking at, at life. Oh, yes, it's all suffering. It's all for nothing. His point is simply this. If you want to live in a new way, it's going to open you up to suffering. Even if you hope to avoid it and still attain liberty, you're just kidding yourself. It won't happen. So he says, to make this point very clearly, I'll just restate it. Suffering is required. If you can't hack that, stay home. That's pretty blunt. What do you think? 801-331-8113. Let's go to the phone. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Hello, this is Rathbite. Hello there. Uh, we need some more callers other than myself, so I'd appreciate it if some of the listeners would call in and say something. You'll push the bright uh, buttons and unleash a torrent of them sooner than you think. Well, I hope I can induce someone to make the call. I want you to imagine a book, and on the front of the book it says, All of the Answers to Life. And the book on the surface is appearing to be a form of a guru, I guess. Uh, So you open the book, and the first page is a mirror, and the second page is a mirror, and the third page is a mirror, and all the way through the book, a book of mirrors. I remember John Lennon, the Beatle, he had a line in his song that said, there ain't no gurus that can see through your eyes. Okay, so with that said, uh, I have to impose a question upon you. Okay. What? How would you distinguish? Now, how would you distinguish between a quote-unquote guru and someone who might just actually be giving you a bit of good advice? I think it, it crosses over into guru territory when you start letting that person um, form 
your vision of who you how you see yourself. Does that make sense? In other it words, does. I, so I, 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 I love good advice, and I love constructive criticism from my friends, you know, those, who, those yeah. who will tell me, hey, this is what you need to work on. I love people for that, but if I start defining myself by what a certain person says because, well, obviously they know so much better than me, it's time to reevaluate. That's, I, I don't think that's a healthy thing. It probably isn't because I think if you're relying on uh, gurus, and I have to say I haven't, I haven't relied on gurus much in my life. I, I had one role model, which was a classic cartoon called Speed Racer, and consequently I drove fast a lot, but fortunately <laughs> it was on a dirt bike in the desert with only roadrunners and jackrabbits around, and they always turned faster than I did, so it was no harm to them. You're smarter than me. The Duke boys were my gurus when it came to driving. That caused a bit of trouble. <laughs> well, I think that if you feel that you need to be led around all of the time, that you're always looking for a helping hand, that you're always looking for a replacement for daddy or mommy, the consequence of that is that you never really look, maybe, I'm just I'm just guessing, sort of, sort of maybe a little bit of guessing, a little bit of experience, that you're not looking at yourself long enough to look deeply enough to be able to have a relationship with yourself and develop your inner knowing so that you can be your own best guide by knowing who you who you are rather than being distorted and manipulated and uh, led down all sorts of path, pathways that might not actually be suitable for you as a person. You can't see it, but I am nodding my head vigorously. I think you're spot on. And, and I understand why people do that, and I've done it myself, too, because sometimes it's just, I don't know, it's easier. Responsibility's hard. It sucks. And sometimes well, I, I might make the wrong I, choice. So if I, if I outsource that to somebody else, doesn't that minimize the risk for me? Sure, but at but well, a cost. It, it makes you think that it's minimizing the risk. Um, that's exactly right. That's what I've seen is that we feel lost sometimes in life, and we want someone to uh, we want to put our trust in someone else. If that's what it is, that's what it comes down to. We want to believe that someone knows better, and so we want to put our trust in someone else. Yep. And that's I think that's where we start. And we and we might get some good information that could help us, but it also starts opening a, us up to vulnerabilities um, because we become reliant on being told what to do and we start and we, and we we stop paying attention as much to what we're doing and what's around us because we're just following instructions and I think that you have to really expand your your personal awareness of yourself and your situational awareness of where you are and and how you feel about your goals in life and what you want to be in life and do in life, um, there's so many things that can mislead you. You know, there's so many things that can come in and make you think that you aren't good enough. And when you start feeling like you're not good enough, then you start thinking that you need something to compensate, help you compensate. I, I just really go, I'll go back. There's so many ways to talk about this. There's probably 101 ways for us to talk about this today, but I'll go back to, be like the, in, the be still and know that I am God. So like if you mm-hmm. could be still and stop all the churning, all the all the churning in your mind and, 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 and the chemistry that happens from all that doubt that's inside yourself, if you could just stop yourself long enough to do nothing, to try to think nothing, and let all of yourself calm down, then you might, your vision kind of clears up because you're not being clouded by so many thoughts and worries and fears and, and senses of needing 
something to help you. And there's so many things out there saying, we'll help you. We got the answer. We got the answer for you. All the marketing and everything that just clutters and confuses. If you can just shut all that down, take a deep breath and then start from where you are. Rathbot, I appreciate you bringing this up. And, and I'll, I'll confess, the reason I brought this up today is because something sparked my memory when I saw um, I, I saw a conversation about people pertaining to political candidates asking the candidates, what are you going to do for me? And I realized there's another form of, you know, the guru. You're, you have to do it for me. Are you going to create jobs? Are you going to make me feel safe? Are you going to make my breath fresh and minty? Whatever it may be. Anyway, thanks so much for your call. I got to take a break here. We're going to pay some bills. We'll come back in just a few moments. This is Loving Liberty. Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. I'm talking today about suffering. And and this is not a message for masochists, okay, so I'm not expecting the masochists. Oh, goody! <laughs> Let's talk about it. Um... It's the idea that if you can't hack some suffering for what you really want, you probably don't want it as bad as you think you do. And I'm leaning on uh, Paul Rosenberg and a great commentary he wrote back in 2016 on the specter of suffering. And I'm just going to give you a couple quick statements here that just illustrate the forms that this can take. He says, if you care more about losing money than gaining liberty, you're not going to get liberty. If truth isn't something you're willing to be hated for, you're not going to get much truth. The reason being, entrenched hierarchies always oppose progress. They want to tear down whatever it is you're building. And if you can't accept the losses and rebuild, and then rebuild yet again, you're not going to get past tyranny. Let's go to the phone. My friend John is standing by. Hello there. Hello. Um, <laughs> sounds like I'm a little bit behind the curve. I've, I've been uh, in and out of the truck since um, you were talking about uh, the thing that sparked my mind, um, no, it wouldn't, if that's all right. <laughs> yeah. Um, when you were uh, talking about, you know, Jordan B. Peterson and the, uh, the problems with gurus and that, um, you know, for me personally, you know, I, I consider Dr. Peterson to be a great, mentor and a very wise person even though there are there are a number of things that I disagree strenuously with him on but you know the reason that I respect him and you know struggle to respect you know other people who are you know commonly held up as gurus and and that is because I can tell that you know he's as I've listened to many of his lectures and read one of his books, he has genuinely suffered and worked through it. And also, um, genuinely thought about the ideas that he shares, you know, and gone through the struggle and suffer that it takes to, 
um, for a person to be able to say that they're honestly looking for truth. I agree. Nobody can accuse him of not having skin in the game, right? Absolutely. You know, and I, I think uh, that many of the people who hold themselves up as gurus today or are thought of in such a way, you know, where people hang on their every word and refuse to, you know, challenge their ideas or even disagree with their ideas, are, are people who who haven't undergone the suffering and the work and the struggle that it takes to really know what you know and really understand what your own principles are and what it takes to um, earn genuine respect, even from those who may disagree with you, you know, not, not to get political, but, you know, the first, the first examples of that that popped into my mind were you know, people like Karl Marx or Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump or um, Representative Ocasio-Cortez. You know, they're people who talk a big game and are very good at riling up crowds and, you know, catching up people, catching people up in their emotions. But you look into their past and, you know, Karl Marx, for example, he know, or Bernie Sanders, you know, they've lived off wealthy friends their entire life. They've never worked a day in their life. They don't know what it means to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow or, in my case, occasionally by the icicles of your beard. <laughs> well put. <laughs> No, no I, I I hear what you're saying. And, and and the accountability isn't there for them either. When they make a bad choice, when they implement a policy that actually hurts people or causes negative consequences, are they held accountable for it? Oh, no, no, that's something else. That's, you know, totally beyond our control. It's, you know, responsibility is a tough thing, and I understand why people want to avoid it. But if you really want control and self-determination over your own life, that's the price you got to pay. There's no other uh, way around it. Absolutely. And, you know, so I, I would say if you violently agree with everything that another person has to say, you're probably doing it wrong. Yep. Hey, by the way, because you are a uh, kind of a shade tree mechanic, I have an mm -hmm. article. I'm going to post it in the show notes. So I would encourage you to find the podcast, lovingliberty.net. Um, there is a... There is a movement afoot right now in Sacramento County, California, that is outlawing almost any auto repair that you do on your property. They're making it illegal for a person to work on their own car on their own property. Oh, yeah, I've heard about that one. I, <laughs> it's part of their zoning I, code. I I had to look, double check and make sure that wasn't from the Babylon Bee after right. I read it. Right. It was so ridiculous. Yeah, I, I read that. I read that article, and you know, it's, see, it prohibits uh, using tools not normally found in a residence or work conducted on vehicles registered to persons not currently residing at the lot or parcel, and conducted outside in a fully outside a fully enclosed garage, or resulting in any vehicle being inoperable for a period in excess of twenty four hours. And I just went, oh, I, I've got to make sure John sees this. So, 
I may text it to you, but I'm going to post it with the show notes as well. I, w- I wanted you to see this, and maybe we can talk about it down the road. Fantastic. All right. Great to hear from you. Thank you. Thanks for calling in. 801-331-8113. Sorry for the sidetrack, but that I, I'm still, my mouth is hanging open looking at this. Just, really? Why is code enforcement concerned about residential automotive repair? Someone on their own property, fixing their own car. Oh, they'll levy the fines and they will they will attach criminal penalties if you keep doing it. Holy cow. <laughs> uh, you're sure you want to be free because uh, that means you're going to have to stand up to people who, who operate under that kind of mindset. Let me come back here for a moment to the specter of suffering. And, and just to make clear, what Paul Rosenberg is, is saying when he's saying, look, if you can't accept that something may go wrong or someone will tear down what you're trying to build and you have to accept the loss and rebuild, you're not going to get anywhere. He says, I'm not endorsing masochism here. I don't expect anyone to like losing money or enjoy seeing something they built torn down. But his warning is if a negative reaction stops you in your tracks or if fear of something going wrong paralyzes you, then you need to stay home till you're ready to pay that price because you'll only muck things up for yourself and for others. Here's how he puts it. He says, in the end, our willingness to suffer comes back to a simple question. What do we want and how badly do we want it? So we can want liberty or we can want truth or something like this, all we like, but the ruling systems of this world don't agree. And more than that, they have millions of people who believe that they are utterly necessary and their edicts must be obeyed without a second thought. Furthermore, he says, many of those people can be counted on to enforce the status quo. Now, being different is punished in a hundred ways and in a thousand places, ranging from the subtle to the gross. But the question still remains, how badly do you want it? Will being insulted at a cocktail party turn you away? How about the threat of losing a contract? Would that turn you back? Is putting your time and effort into something that might be torn down too big of a risk or too big of an embarrassment? Paul Rosenberg says if we can't take such risks and more, then we're not ready to change the world. Changing the world requires that you and I hold our ideas of what's good and right above the ideas of the world's rulers. We'll have to do what we think is right, regardless of what the world thinks. And when you do that, just for the record, you better be prepared to suffer. And come on, Christ warned his followers, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, and when they persecute you in this city, flee to another, right? Well, the early Christians avoided suffering when they could, but they took it when they had to. And because of that, they changed the world for the better. Paul Rosenberg points out, you know, Rome was built upon slavery. And it was the Christians who eradicated it. Pop history be damned. He says Christianity, like Judaism, was never meant to be easy. A follower of Jesus was supposed to lead mankind into the light, thus angering those who remain in the darkness. Pretty interesting stuff. I know there's a bit of a religious overtone. Maybe that makes some people a little bit uncomfortable. But the, the bottom line is this. The things you care about, about most are typically going to be things that you're willing to suffer for. And if you're not willing to take a few slings and arrows, if you're not willing to stick your neck out knowing full well that there are people lined up and ready to chop away, maybe you, uh, maybe you don't value it as much as you think you do. By the way, I'm not setting myself up as the guru here. I'm as scared of these things as anybody. 
but I'm learning to move forward through the fear just because it's the right thing to do. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. You can join the conversation at 801-331-8113. We are in the home stretch. And uh, by the way, I have added the article I was talking about, uh, about uh, Sacramento County saying it's illegal to work on your own car in your own garage. And something they're apparently uh, backing up with, uh, you know, hundreds of dollars in fines if someone, you know, gets ratted out for working on their own car. And keep in mind, these aren't fussy rules from some HOA. This is the entire county. Why are they against home automotive repair and work? Well, I'm going to kind of poke fun at California here, but how many things have you seen that don't have a California warning label? The state of California has determined that this object or this substance can cause cancer. If they could find a way to stick it on sunlight, I'm sure they would. It's just that big mother oppressive bureaucracy it's another form of it but actually here's here's what the county sacramento county says they say the chemicals involved in major automobile repair can pollute our neighborhoods and endanger the health and well-being of our residents furthermore this kind of activity increases vehicle traffic and the visual impact can negatively impact property values oh my word well yeah if you're running a repair shop out of your garage sure Maybe there's derelict vehicles parked all over your street. What about a person who's just working on their car in their garage or in their driveway, for that matter? Well, there might be some chemicals. There might be. So what? Cars spring leaks all the time. It just seems it seems like a big over-response. I mean, how much lawn and garden care deals with harmful chemicals, weed killers, pesticides, poison? Think about it. Motor oil, yeah, it could be harmful, but uh, we're not talking about somebody just running out and dumping it down the gutter. And as far as, well, it might increase vehicular traffic, yeah, well, so will my uh, rib fest that I'm going to hold here soon. People smell that stuff cooking, they're going to come and you know want to have some ribs. There's no reason for it to be illegal. So who wants to be this overweening nanny that prohibits everybody from doing what uh, what someone is troubled by. I love how the article here says terrible people. That's who. <laughs> Sad, tedious people who won't rest until the world is slathered in boring, grayscale crossovers. Those kind of laws need not only scrutiny, they need pushback. But the first thing you have to do is you have to know about them. And if somebody at you, in your locale is proposing that, you need to push back hard. Otherwise, you're going to see vast amounts of the entire car owning as an interest or hobby become illegal. That doesn't sound very good. All right, I'm going to get uh, I'm going to get a little bit personal here for a moment. Um, since we were talking about suffering, I came across an old essay that I had written about what my dad taught me about legitimate pain, and I'm a little bit surprised to realize I wrote this nine years ago. Because the very first line is, my dad has been gone for 21 years. Actually, he died 30 years ago, January 30th of 19, January 31st, actually, of 1990. More than half of my life ago, 
And yet uh, 30 years still sometimes seems like an eye blink. And I've lost count of how many times I've encountered him in my dreams and then seized precious moments to say what needed to be said, only to wake up to the reality of his absence. One of the greatest lessons that my dad taught me during his short 56-year lifespan was the value of legitimate pain. And I want you to hear me out on this. Pain can be a good thing. In fact, there are a few things in life as underrated as legitimate pain. Many of us spend our entire lives in a state of pain avoidance, as if any pain whatsoever is somehow evidence of failure. And, you know, just so we're clear, I, I don't think pain is fun. I think only a masochist would actually seek it out. But there are some types of pain that are a necessary part of living in that they serve an essential purpose of teaching us lessons that refine us and leave us better than before. Let me give you a couple of examples. How about the pain that's experienced by those who exercise and push themselves beyond the level of sedentary comfort? Come on, if you've been a couch potato for a while, the first time you get out and ride a bike or uh, try to jog or even take a long uphill walk, it's painful. But it's a temporary pain. And you feel it in your sore muscles. You feel it in your burning lungs. But that pain serves a purpose and your body is stronger for having invited it and endured it. Now, there's also well-founded pain that comes in the form of sorrow that follows a realization of wrongdoing. That's the pain that helps inspire the repentant individual to, to make a course correction, to steer a more true course as they move ahead. And that's another example of legitimate pain. It has a purpose, and we need to distinguish it from illegitimate pain. I had a good friend in southern Utah. I haven't talked to him in quite some time, but uh, I, I still hear his words echo in my mind about how avoidance of legitimate pain is a huge, albeit short-sighted, mistake in that it robs us of powerful opportunities to grow on numerous levels. Now, the best example I can turn to is uh, when, when my dad passed away. The day after Thanksgiving, 1989, my dad sat down with me and informed me, I've been, I've been diagnosed with terminal cancer. The doctors say nothing more can be done. And it was so out of my realm of understanding. You know how they talk about denial sets in when you get some bad news? I really didn't understand what he meant. In fact, I asked him, what, what does that mean? <laughs> he just told me he's dying, but uh, I, I really didn't want to believe that's what I had heard. And as, as it became clear that what he was saying was actually taking place in front of me, uh, as he wasted away, it was very, very difficult to accept the reality that soon he was going to be gone from my life. Now, this was the first time that I had faced the loss of someone close to me. And I was very confused by all of the emotions that surged over me. It was a flood of emotions. I, and I honestly didn't know. How am I supposed to feel? What am I supposed to How do you grieve? Because I'd never been there before. And so in a fit of misplaced anger, I defiantly resolved, I will be strong. I will not allow myself to shed a single tear over his passing. Now, I gather there are probably some of you shaking your heads going, ooh, bad idea. Yeah, I learned. I learned the hard way. See, to make good on that vow, I stubbornly refused to visit my father's deathbed or even speak to him during the last two weeks of his life. In fact, I even made a point to avoid my grieving relatives. And the legitimate pain and doubt that followed that decision was not avoided. It was deferred. 
only to return with compound interest at a later time. What should have been a natural period of mourning, followed by healing, instead became a period of very long-term sorrow and suffering that actually carried on for years. All for trying to avoid the legitimate pain of saying goodbye to a loved one. Now, by contrast, about six years later, when my grandfather reached the end of his life, I had learned from (laughs) the painful lesson that I'd given myself before. I made a very conscious decision to spend as much time with him as possible. We talked about how he was approaching the end of his life. I openly told him how much he meant to me. I told him how much I would miss him. And I was there with him when he drew his final breath. And the thing that surprised me the most was the sense of peace and calm that filled the room as he passed. Now, by contrast, the the healing of uh, the loss of my grandfather was swift, and it was sure. I didn't have doubts or sorrow that would dog me like I did for the years following my dad's death. And there were absolutely no regrets for missed opportunities. Was it painful? Absolutely. But the pain that accompanied my grandfather's death also provided me with much-needed strength and growth. And it was a very powerful lesson about the benefit of embracing it rather than avoiding legitimate pain. So if you find yourself tempted to avoid legitimate emotional pain, that's a very simple trap to fall into as well. Now, fortunately, those harmful effects can be negated. The value of legitimate pain can be proven just by squarely facing whatever individuals or situations in which we find pain and then earnestly seeking to mend what's wrong. Now, look, I understand some things can't be fixed, but the pain still serves a purpose. In the case of a dying loved one, it can take the form of expressing your love for them as well as your sorrow. And there's something that's incredibly healing that takes place for both parties when that dying person is the one who's wiping away your tears. There's also peace to be found in extending sincere forgiveness to those with whom we're estranged. And this is true whether they accept our overtures or not. But this is the kind of thing you actually have to experience in order to believe. So my point here is instead of wearing ourselves out in an effort to avoid pain at all costs, What we need to do is learn to distinguish between destructive pain and legitimate but temporary pain that, while unpleasant, ultimately leaves us stronger and wiser than it found us. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 